Welcome to this very special episode of the Dyson House podcast. My name is Thenu Herath, and today I am joined by Caitlin Figueredo and Yasmin Poole to discuss how we can best empower young women in international affairs. Those of you who have been listening to this series from the beginning would know that this special season was created to combat the gender imbalance in international affairs by highlighting the work of incredible women working in these areas. But today, I want to flip this narrative and work out how the sector can best ensure that young women who are just beginning their careers are set up to succeed in the future. Joining me in today's discussion are two incredible young women who are already making waves in this space. Caitlin is the founder and CEO of Jaziri Australia, an organisation working to strengthen representative democracy by unleashing Australia's next generation of political leaders. Caitlin has seven years' experience advising international civil society organisations and has served on three UN task forces. She also has worked as a senior consultant with two Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade Assistant Secretaries and currently works as an expert panellist on direction of the Prime Minister and Minister for Youth to co-develop the Australian Youth Development Index. Also joining us today is Yasmin, who has worked as the chair of the Victorian Government's Youth Congress, representing over a million young Australians. She has represented Australian youth in conferences such as APEC and the UN Commission on the Status of Women. She's currently Plan International's Youth Ambassador, focusing on engaging young Australian women in politics. Yasmin has been a panellist on shows such as Q&A and The Drum, with a focus on how we can include youth in the conversation to create change. So Caitlin and Yasmin, thank you so much for joining me today. It is an absolute pleasure to be sharing this platform with you both. In Australia, the fields of diplomacy, politics, defence and intelligence have long been male-dominated professions. As young women, particularly women of colour as well, I'd love to begin by hearing about your perceptions of this growing up. Caitlin, maybe we'll start with you. Did you pay much attention to this lack of representation when you were younger? I mean, when I was really young, not really. I grew up in a very multicultural household. My dad is Indian, um, my mum is Australian. And when we were younger, um, we weren't really involved in politics per se, because I mean, my mum, she was um, a worker at the Australia Post um, and my dad was just in accounting. They really tried to keep us away from politics. That was up until I think 9-11 when I was around five years old. And that's when my family really started paying attention to the news a lot more. We were started because I was a bit older. I started to, you know, watch the news a lot more. I got to see who our political representatives were. And I couldn't really see anyone on TV who were addressing, you know, the major um, international relations issues at the time who looked like me, who looked like my dad, who looked like my, my cousins, my family. And that started getting me really interested in who, like whose voices are out there, who, whose voices are representing us. And that made me start to be a lot more interested, especially when I became a um, self um, self-professed political junkie when I was 12 years old. And I remember watching the um, 07 elections and thinking to myself, okay, one day I want to be in politics because I want to make sure that I can see all of my community represented. Because, I mean, we live in such a multicultural community. It can give us an opportunity to start raising awareness and being involved. Yasmin, is this something that you can relate to as well? Completely. And I think the thing with representation is that, as Caitlin mentioned, 
um, even growing up, it it might not even be, I guess, immediately obvious because we become so used to seeing a particular type of person, a particular type of leader on our screens, on our media, et cetera, et cetera. So initially growing up, I wasn't even necessarily aware of the lack of representation because I didn't even think about it. Um, but I, what I did feel is a sense of difference. And I grew up in a rural area where it was basically me and another girl, you know, who were like young women of color. This is, this is primary school though, um, growing up. And, and I would see the way even people would um, speak to my mom, who is a, a migrant and, you know, would even treat her lesser than. And even as a, as a year three, year four, I could already feel that, that sense of difference. So for me, my understanding, my eventual understanding of lack of representation and the importance of, you know, creating a diverse society and, sorry, diverse representation, whether it be positions of power, media or otherwise, was a really long journey. Um, but certainly when I thought of myself as a leader, I, it, took, it was a very long journey for me. And I think the base of that is that I just didn't see myself represented in those spaces. So starting a career and within IR and just generally, you know, um, my kind of work, it was something that I thought that I didn't have license to, something that I thought I had to graduate and, and have a top level position in order to make a change. And that was, I think, because we just don't see young women and young diverse women, especially in those kind of positions. So how did you both get around this, let's call it visual barrier with a lack of representation to get to where you both are now? I remember going up to um, a political leader and they said, in order for you to get into an IR or a political space, you need to have at least contributed five to 10 years before you can get your voice in the room. And at the time I was really interested in working for World Vision because my family, um, they escaped Kenya um, in the 19, in early 1960s because they were being persecuted from being from Indian backgrounds. And so I was really interested in trying to get myself into that space so I can start supporting people outside of Australia. Um, and that's when I pursued World Vision. And I was 18 at the time. I had had no leadership experience whatsoever. And I reached out to World Vision and I said, I'm really passionate about the work that you do. Is there any opportunities that I can be involved with in your organization? It doesn't matter even if I'm doing like delivering your mail in the office or if I'm doing coffee runs or whatever, I just want to be involved. And at the time they were advertising for a position in um, New, in New South Wales. And so I basically applied and I said, even though I'm going to ANU, I am going to get in my car every single day. Obviously this is like a little bit of an overstatement, but I said, I will drive every single day to, to run, to be a part of the organization in the ACT in New South Wales and then come back to the ACT. Unfortunately, I didn't get that position, but they allowed me, because of my passion and my drive, to start up that same organization in the ACT. And so that was really my first opportunity to recognize that if you have that passion and that drive and that commitment, even just reaching out, even if you don't see yourselves in those positions of power because of the entrenched you know, misogyny, ageism, racism that are dominating the space for generations, 
there are people out there willing to give young people, in particular young women, a go. And they are mentors and supporters to help you. So really getting involved in World Vision at 18 and starting up um, VGEN in the ACT really led me to be connected with political leaders and ambassadors. And that led me to a career in international development and international relations more broadly with the United Nations. And so that that's, I think, something that I would always recommend to everyone is even if you don't see yourself in those positions, reach out to mentors and organisations that you um, align with because generally there are people out there who are willing to help. Yeah, I think for me, I can point to many moments over my life that gave me a sense of agency or contributed to me rethinking my idea of leadership. But I guess a more recent example that, has really altered the way that I view my own leadership journey is attending the Asian Australian Leadership Summit. And that happened last year. And it was the first time in my life I had been in a room where I looked around and I really felt that in some way, you know, in some, even though we didn't, you know, in some way, I feel like we all came from similar backgrounds, um, similar lenses. You know, growing up as an Asian Australian, as we said before, it's often quite an isolating experience. But this was the first time where I really felt this sense of belonging. And um, it, it really got me kind of reflecting on the idea of representation. And in that summit, they were talking about this idea of cultural strengths that often Asian Australian leaders or Asian Australians aren't actually, um, there's this, this it's kind of bamboo ceiling is what it's called. And um, because of Asian Australian often traits, which can be viewed as not challenging authority or, you know, working hard, keeping your head down and not being the idea of that, the loudest person in the room, the kind of person that would, you know, backslap everyone and that very white male idea of power um, often prevents Asian Australian leaders from entering into those positions. So I started mulling on this idea of cultural strengths and what they were talking about is the, the idea that Asian Australians often actually take a really facilitative approach, consensus-based decision-making. Um, and that's actually really powerful when it comes to making decisions in this space because it means that we hear from individuals that aren't often heard. And I thought back to the one time where I really had the license to craft my own type of leadership and that was working for the Australian government's, sorry, the Victorian government's Youth Congress, which was their first ever youth advisory board representing over a million young Victorians. And I was tasked with leading 20 really diverse young people to represent, um, uh, you know, the voices of young people and advise the Minister for Youth on what we wanted to see changed youth policy-wise. And this was, you know, young, young people from refugee backgrounds, Indigenous backgrounds, experienced disability, you name it. And I realised in that moment that, yeah, I had used my cultural strengths. Um, I had always felt this need that I wanted to be a facilitator more than anything. I never wanted to be the loudest person in the room. That's never been me. And, you know, kind of using my own cultural strengths in a way and not trying to copy, again, the conventional form of white male leadership. And it worked. You know, it was a really successful program. And I also really stepped into myself as a leader so I think that really changed my attitude on how to become successful and how to become a leader. And it's not about copying the kind of style that we often see on TV. If anything, by, by kind of supporting one kind of leadership, we're creating a lot of blind spots and we're preventing, you know, we're not seeing the full range of problems if we're only listening to really one group of people. So that's really, um, I guess, 
empowered me to really step into my own journey, my own path, instead of trying to copy or, or model something that doesn't feel right. That's a really interesting point you've just brought up there, Yasmin. I've often thought about how leadership is framed in such a way to emulate essentially people who have already been in power for centuries. This idea of male, often white, leadership has led to what many describe as a boys' club culture, and it's in fact one of the largest barriers facing women who want to work in international affairs. Have either of you had any specific experiences with this, and to what extent do you think that this culture exists? I guess first I'd like to touch upon that idea of power that you mentioned because it's really important that we talk about how power um, can be perceived in a way that marginalizes the voices of women and so often women are expected to play this double role right they're meant to kind of adopt these quite masculine characteristics in order to be perceived as legitimate um you know authoritative and, and like i said like maybe even the loudest voice in the room but at the same time um women are judged for appearing too masculine and they're still expected to at the same time while being a leader you know be the nice caring smiley um person that that women are expected to be. Otherwise, um, you know, they're cold and, you know, merciless and that kind of thing. And it's this balancing act that women can't win, as in um, that expectation, if that remains, is fundamentally unfair and it puts women on a tightrope and it means that we're not allowed to craft our own, you know, unique sense of leadership because we're expected to kind of play these, these, dub these double roles. So, you know, when we look into positions of power, especially in IR, of course we see a lack of representation of women. Um, and I think that represents, you know, a failure to be open-minded about different styles of leadership. And, you know, when I think about gender equality, I can I can think of many, many instances within the international relations space where we see, you know, again, women in the audience, but never on the stage. Um, and even, and that also carries wider ramifications because as a young woman, my work, I, I have to call this out. I have to call lack of representation, but that puts the burden and the onus on women to be consistently calling this out. And that can be pretty daunting when you're calling that out to, to considerably large international relations organizations. And I've already received some pushback as a result of, of calling it out, but it is a necessary thing to do and something I would implore everyone to be always looking around you always thinking about whether these events or conferences or workplaces are diverse. Um, so I think that was kind of where I've seen gender inequality. And I think we also have to have a pretty frank conversation about the idea of sexual harassment across the workplace. And this isn't just international relations, but there's certainly been times, whether it be people wanting to be my mentor and realizing that it's actually an opportunity for them to act pretty uncomfortably around me, um, you know, and, and try to hit on me or whether it be in networking um, sessions. And often I've relied on women to help take me out of those scenarios in a way and kind of be like, all right, Yasmin, you know, do you want to come with me for a little bit and, and step away? And that's a real reality that often young women face in these spaces and something that's just incredibly, incredibly unacceptable, um, but certainly a problem that we need to have frank conversations about. Yeah, um, I've, I don't think there's any young person you can talk to who hasn't had a similar, who's been in a similar position, unfortunately. One of 
and I'm going to be very frank with the audience. Um, so I apologize that this is going to be a trigger warning. Um, I'm, talk, I'm going to talk about sexual harassment and assault in the international space. Um, but when I was 19 years old, I was invited to the United Nations to give a speech on the sustainable development goals in Australia and young people's response to ensuring that we are going to be the drivers of the SDGs within the next decade and how we can be active contributors and change makers. And so when I when I was presenting at the United Nations, I was headhunted by a very senior official at UN Women. And at 19 years old, being in you know the most at my mind, the most prestigious place of of global unity and and, and peace and a space where I had dreamed of engaging with and all, and all of a sudden someone in a very high position of power was offering me an opportunity to be a part of a UN interagency task force which offered a unique opportunity for young people across the globe to work with civil society, UN agencies on gender and youth policy reforms and gender and youth initiatives such as the Commission of the Status of Women which I'm going to talk about um, really briefly and that was you know, awe inspiring and it automatically had an unbalance of power and so basically I joined this task force which was for me in my mind it was incredible and it was an absolutely amazing experience you know with that um, I was a founding member of the Commission of Status of Women Youth Forum and that has been running for over three and a half years now so bringing in over 1,000 youth and gender equality delegates from across the world to talk about um, the commission of status of women is relevant issues um, creating you know policy initiatives that we present to the um, to the um, parliamentary delegates at, during the actual commission is incredible because you know you're carving out those youth spaces and it's incredible to be in those spaces however there are often people in those positions of power who give young people opportunities and that they are willing to target them. So the person who recruited me and a lot of my friends from across the globe, all who were under the age of 22 years old, were being targeted in a sexual harassment and sexual assault manner. I, I am very fortunate. Not, nothing in the sexual assault manner happened to me, but it happened to my friends. And... What did happen to me was every single night between 12 in the morning until 5 a.m. in the morning, my time, I would be consistently pressured to essentially use my social media, which I had you know, developed at the time to have a, a, a large, significantly large following. And basically, I had to use it to give the person who, who recruited me more, more power or gratification. I had to um, like retweet them. Otherwise I would lose my position within the interagency task force. I would have to um, provide him with speaking opportunities. Um, and then with my friends, they were actually, um, they were sent pornography messages. They were grabbed um, that like this member grabbed my friend's genitals and mocked them for their religious convictions. We were um, harassed 
endlessly and intimidated to stand down and to to not speak up until finally we realized that this was a systemic issue within this space and it was a clear misuse of power and motivation and we are very lucky that we had women again as Yasmin said women coming to our support who were able to help us in work out what was happening to us recognize that this is a clear misuse of power um, and that they they were able to help us in particular my friends who were being um, more targeted to raise it within the UN system and we're lucky that this person has now left the UN system but it is this is what happens behind the doors the closed doors and it's really interesting that the place and and the system where I was in was all about gender equality and this happens time and time again not just to young people to people of color, to women from all ages, from the time that the, from the entry position up until they're the most senior person in the room. And so I think it's something that we really need to talk about, as Jasmine said, about and share our stories. We need to call it out. We need to say that this is not acceptable, that this is not the world that we're trying to achieve. It is not acceptable um, in the public forum. It's not acceptable behind closed doors. Um, so, yeah, I thought I'd just share that because even though as you're trying to create change and you're trying to get into these power, into these positions of power, people will use and abuse you. And I mean, that's why I don't really use social media anymore because that is really triggering for me. So, yeah, I thought I'd just share that and I hope that's okay. Thank you for sharing that, Caitlin. It was incredibly brave of you to be willing to recount that. And I think what startled me most was that like you mentioned, this was UN Women. These are organizations that are meant to be there to further the cause of gender equality. And the fact that you experience that is actually quite disheartening. Is there something that we're doing wrong in the space of gender equality? That an organization built fundamentally to combat this experiences the very thing that they are trying to fight against? UN Women obviously as an organization, they, they were built on the premise of gender equality, as you said. Um, we, I was really lucky because I was surrounded by incredibly powerful and, and amazing and supportive women. I have some of my mentors who still to this day I met through this task force. And it was just one person. It was one bad person. And it was that, that system which allowed him for so long to go unpunished because again it was it was almost the the third highest person you could go in terms of policy advisors in UN women this is as how high it went he was a advisor to the deputy executive director of UN women and so by mere fact of his position he was able to exploit it and I think, and that's why we need to start creating institutions where you do have, you know, whistleblower systems, which are young people or people in any position are given access to, and they're given and they're giving support, and that the system is actually designed to make sure that the people who are um, who are the persecutors and are taken out of those positions straight away and it's not covered up and that it is spoken about in public and that there are review committees, which, you know, the UN Women has done since. They've had reviews, they've made sure that he is gone, they've given support to the survivors um, 
and they've changed their processes. And this has got to be with every single organization. And I think every single organization needs to really look at who is in charge, who is leading the rooms, what are their values, do they align, Is and and rather than just talking to them, you've got to talk to the people who work with them or the people who work under them, especially in, you know, young people and, and women who may not have that same, you know, power, who, who are not the same power hierarchy and see their opinions and sp- start speaking to them. Because unless you start speaking out to other people, you'll never know what's really happening in your organization. And I think every single organization has a duty of care that until they really start addressing the root problems of misogyny, power hierarchy, um, racism, you know, we can't start creating, as I said, a more equal world because the institutions that are creating those are, are, are flawed. But again, saying that, UN Women has t- done a lot of work to be able to once again create those safe spaces for young people and for young women. And I'm really happy to see that, you know, they've they've created, you know, a Bayesian 25 um, youth task force, which are really designing policies um, and spaces for young people to engage with the Bayesian 25 um agenda and so they have learnt from it but not everyone else has learnt from what happened at UN Women and they haven't done that internal review which I think needs to happen. I suppose it's a little bit of a catch-22 with this sort of culture driving women away there is not going to be that significant demographic shift to in turn reform that culture in many international organisations. Yasmin what are your thoughts on quotas as a solution to this lack of representation? Is it a necessary measure? Or should the problem be approached in a more holistic manner? It's an interesting question about quotas because if you had asked me the year before, I would have said no. Um, I guess my my thoughts on quotas are more strong within the political space. Um, And of course, I think it also depends on the context of the organisation and how much representation um, is already there. But I guess, you know, in terms of how I think about quotas, if I can draw an, a comparison to Australian politics, um, quotas aren't always effective at the more entry-level positions. I actually think quotas make more sense in the upper leadership positions. So if you look at Australian Parliament, um, we're seeing a lot more increase, well, at least <laughs> we're seeing a, a, a general increase in the number of women um, that are becoming politicians and, you know, and that is partially because of quotas. But if we look at Australian cabinet um, over the years, and this is across, um, you know, both major parties, um, there actually hasn't been a shift in the number of women in cabinet. It actually went down and now it's kind of, um, you know, the same as around 2013 level. And that's that's seven women. Um, And we've still only had one female prime minister, you know, in Australia's history. And so it's interesting because despite the correlation of an increased number of women, again, at the initial, you know, getting elected and and becoming politicians in their respective seats, we're not actually seeing much of a shift in the higher levels of leadership. And this is the problem that we can also see within IR and within workplaces. We see women coming in at the entry-level position, and that might be influenced through quotas, but we're not seeing that shift of the number of women in higher positions of power. And there are many reasons for that. The first is that the nature of work can often be inflexible towards women, you know, especially considering the burden 
burden of care and and the fact that women often can't work full time because of those high expectations compared to men. But it's also because of the way that we view and understand leadership often excludes women. So actually, in my eyes, quotas make sense from a higher level because it allows, um, I guess, us to challenge that idea of leadership from the top down. And if we can do that from the top down, that, in my eyes, will create a positive working culture, even in the entry level positions, because it's one thing to just throw women in the space and say, OK, now go swim. Um, but what if the environment is hostile or what if the environment can be sexist? You know, what if there are really uncomfortable issues like sexual harassment? There's still a, still a power dynamic if we're not seeing women in the higher levels. Um, so I think for us to actually make quotas meaningful, um, organisations need to actually be willing to use quotas at a higher level position if, you know, there is a diversity and representation problem. And that's not a case of not finding the best person for the job. I always say that I think that men and women are equally capable of taking on higher leadership. It's just that within our narrow-minded conception of leadership, um, and especially within fellow you know, higher decision makers, they can often exclude women because it doesn't fit the conventional leadership box. So for us to change that, I think quotas do play an important role in that regard. Again, that's a really important point you bring up there is I guess this perception that there isn't that much room at the top for women because that's just the way it's always been it's been heavily male dominated I often hear too many anecdotes of women and people from other minority groups as well competing against each other to secure what they believe is the one token spot available to them because of their identity how can we better support each other as women to break down these barriers together? Or is this purely a reflection of broader systemic issues in Australia's political culture? Yeah, I think definitely there can be an issue um, of, of women or, or other, I think particularly actually women, to be honest, um, treating leadership as if it's, again, one token position and trying to exclude others from that. And I think that's really, really disappointing. And often, you know, I can, I've heard from other women, this is established women in high leadership roles, denying the fact that systemic sexism exists, denying the fact that the glass ceiling exists, acting as if, um, it, you know, saying things like, oh, well, you know, I've worked really hard, you know, I've dealt with it. Um, you know, I've kind of put up with it, so why why can't you put up with it? And I think that's a really disappointing opinion to take because it excludes others. You know, it, it that excludes that kind of essentialist viewpoint, excludes women from you know diverse other diverse backgrounds like people, women of color and disabled women, that kind of thing. So acting like it's just kind of toughing toughening up and working hard ignores the barriers that women often face, and even if you know, certain established women who come from typically privileged backgrounds haven't experienced that. That doesn't mean that the problem doesn't exist. So I think the first step towards realising that it's not a competition between women is realising the deep barriers within the workplace and leadership um, that marginalise women's voices, um, you know, all kinds of diverse women. And I think it's through appreciating kind of structural barriers. It doesn't become this game of who can work the hardest and toughen out, you know, even if you face sexism to just deal with it or you face sexual harassment to just deal with it. And 
I think within that, you know, again, really, really crucial to find mentors in this space and female mentors. And for me, you know, that's been really, really important for me, you know, if I've faced discrimination or I'm just really frustrated at the state of, of you know, of leadership and, and representation, I can go to them as, as a way to, you know, vent that frustration and, and get their feedback and get their ideas. And there's so much power in that ecosystem of, of feminists, of female leaders that can uplift and empower. And thankfully, I've, I've met many that give me so much hope and are doing such amazing work in leveraging women into leadership roles and, and realise how important it is because if we don't take that holistic view and we, if we don't support other women, how are we expecting toxic cultures to change? Women and female represent, representation is necessary to that shift. So by not leveraging other women and excluding them, we are only hurting um, other women. We're hurting you know, ourselves as women. Um, so let's work together. Caitlin, you also have extensive experience working with young women to elevate them into positions of power, especially in parliament. Are you optimistic that we'll get to a day that it is completely normal to see as many Julia Gillards in parliament as it is to see the multitude of male leaders that we've had so far? Yeah, honestly, I, at the moment, I would say I'm pretty disheartened that it's unlikely that we're going to see another female um, prime minister for at least another decade. I was trying to crunch the numbers and it's been 10 years since Julia Gillard was prime minister. We have another election next year. We don't have um, as either as the prime minister or the deputy prime minister or the leader of the opposition or deputy leader of the opposition. Neither of them are, are women. Um, and so that's at least another election. And then you're going to have probably, you know, one in six years time. The only time that you'll really have a chance for another female prime minister is potentially between six to 10 years time. And that's really disheartening because, it, again, it goes back to the point that Yasmin made earlier is that even though we are increasing the amount of women in parliament across the board, you know, we're still ranked 57th in the world for gender representation in in politics. Um, we still only have, um, you know, 11% of parliamentarians are born from overseas in comparison to like 33% of the population being immigrants in Australia. And that even if you break it down even further, it gets even more disheartening because, you know, you only have 1% of representatives in federal parliament who have a disability in comparison to 18% of the population. So, I believe with what we're doing at Jaziri Australia, especially with our Girls Think Repellent program, you know, we're bringing young women into politics. We're giving them the mentors and the opportunities across equal party lines. You know, our, you know, some people may say, oh, but, you know, shadowing is important, but you don't, it's not more substantive than that. But actually, if you look behind the scenes and what the girls are doing themselves, and that's all about, you know, mentoring and opportunities and providing support, you know, the girls um, in our program for the last three years, They've worked on over 21 public motions across Parliament that have been supported. They have worked on um, legislation for their parliamentarians. They have, um, we've got our first ever young um, delegates from 20, 
2017. She's actually running for local office in Canberra right now, which we're really excited about. We have um, some of our delegates have gone on to being advisors for Maurice Payne. Um, we have young women who have actually created a school for girls in India, um, which has a civic education component um, with her family. We have girls who are running campaigns to end sexual assault and harassment on campuses. So, you know, bringing them into politics, giving them the training and the sphere and access is actually helping them to go out and make a difference. You know, 65% of our our delegates from Girls Like My Parliament from Desiree have gone on to holding leadership positions in their own right. Um, and so our goal is to, especially now in COVID, because it's given us a really a unique opportunity to change how how our programs and our processes. So, you know, next year we're expanding the program. We're already in four states and three countries abroad, but we're um, increasing a public policy program where we are giving public policy fellowships to young women, in particular young women of colour from across the country, to give them that policy support, which they will work with a politician and political and public policy mentors to craft and design policies of their own. We are getting um, internships with political leaders from our after they graduate to Girls State Department, we're doing that. We're doing um, a voting registration um, component for a school education program so we can start getting young women in particular um, interested in politics from a young age you know breaking it down making it fun making it inclusive trying to challenge those um, ingrained stereotypes and beliefs and really helping them see that politics and diplomacy and international relations is a career for them and that we can provide support. And it's really starting from a young age and it's trying to open up as many opportunities, but not just for them to be in those positions, but also like as, as we've talked about in this podcast today, it's about those connection opportunities with different women and men from across the political aisle. It's about you know, challenging their perceptions, crafting those safe spaces to have those really tough debates. And that's how we're going to start making our democracies more inclusive. Um, and so that's, and so I personally think, you know, through programs like Girls' Like Parliament, you've also got other programs like Pathway to Politics from Melbourne. You've got other um groups which are specifically training and supporting women to run for office, you know, through these programs, one day we will see every, like, hundreds of, of Julia Gillards and Julie Bishops, and I can't wait for that day. And I really cannot wait to see that a, a woman is the head of each major party. I'm going to celebrate that day. Caitlin and Yasmin, thank you again for joining me today. Certainly talking to you has made me quite optimistic that that day might come sooner than we think.